So it's this interconnectedness, which really is the nature of a B Corp. It's a stakeholder model, not a shareholder model. We truly are, as stakeholders, all completely interconnected. And because of that, there is no leaving. There is no, oh, I'm just going to I'm just going to leave this gig and no one's going to be affected. Uh, Right. uh, And uh, in that way, I feel like I've made courage inescapable. This is the redemptive edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they are led by people who aren't living for themselves or even satisfied just with improving themselves, but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much somewhere you've arrived as a journey you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. My guest on this episode is Jessica Honiger, the founder of Noonday Collection. Noonday described themselves as a socially conscious fashion brand. They distribute artisan jewelry and accessories from around the world and work to build deep connections between the people who make those items and ambassadors here in the United States who sell them to their friends and their neighbors. It's a $17 million business that employs 4,000 artisans around the world. This business model is called direct sales. If you are in certain social circles, you may feel like you've been invited to one too many parties for dubious direct sales products. Although I have one friend who is so persuasive about essential oils that I almost tried them. But let me just say that Noonday Collection feels different. I have one friend who's super suspicious of the direct sales model who told me that Noonday is the one company whose parties she would actually go to. And in talking to Jessica and reading her 2018 book, Imperfect Courage, which in many ways is the story of her starting this company and what she learned along the way, I think I figured out why Noonday feels different. If you want a classic story of a founder starting a business absolutely from scratch, starting almost by accident and going through all the ups and downs of success and failure and questioning and breakthroughs and having to learn that angel investors are not actually angels who just give you a check, this is totally that story. But this is also a story about much deeper things because Jessica is someone who just consistently chooses the deeper thing. And you're going to hear that in this conversation. So Noonday Collection is not just products, it's not just this kind of ambassador and artisan sales model, but it started and in many ways is sustained by really a story of adoption. So let's start Mm. with that thing you were trying to do and and kind of what went wrong and what went right as you pursued international adoption for the first time. So my husband and I had two children under the age of five, and Joe and I had actually met during a training for Food for the Hungry International, and we were sort of hair on fire, justice-oriented, we want to go change the world, and that was the context that our relationship formed in. So we went overseas for a couple years, had been home back in Austin 
for a few years. And this was our way of participating in sort of that purpose that we felt like brought us together, this idea that we have been given opportunity and we want to use that opportunity to create even more opportunity for others. And we went to an adoption conference. We started researching foster care, domestic adoption. But as we began to really pray and move forward, we decided on international adoption we decided to go ahead and take a trip to Uganda first to kind of explore and try it on and visit some orphanages. And so we went to Uganda and that was actually the trip where some of my friends that were living there, they were living there specifically to create entrepreneurial opportunities for Ugandans. Hmm. It was everything from teaching a plumber how to invoice and helping him with a microloan on buying a bike for his plumbing business, all the way to mosquito repellent systems. And one of those businesses that they had wanted to start but hadn't really thought through was an artisan business. So we sat on their front porch and they began sharing, hey, we really love this young couple, Johnny and Daniel, would you be interested in selling their goods? And I completely laughed them off and thought, you know, what are you talking about? I'm (laughs) about to do adoption right now. We've got a real estate company, but thanks for thinking of me. (laughs) And came home from that trip, realized, you know what, we definitely want to pursue adoption. And one of my friends got in wind that we were pursuing African adoption and had just gotten back from Africa. And he reached out to me and said, hey, I just met a woman who just adopted from Rwanda and she's here. She wants to facilitate adoptions for other Americans. I reached out to this woman and said, hey, I'm interested in pursuing Rwandan adoption. Would you mind helping me out? And she said, yeah, like we felt so many green lights, but it was definitely an intense process. In the meantime, our financial situation, we had been flipping houses in the Austin real estate market and the recession finally kind of caught up to Austin Uh and we were really suddenly living off that nest egg that we had for all the adoption expenses because international adoption is really expensive. At that point, you know, we are really, the paperwork is pretty much through. We still have outstanding adoption expenses. We have no money for it we were faced with this choice. And, you know, I say that that's when courage really cornered me. Was I going to let a financial obstacle get in the way of pursuing what we felt like we were supposed to do, which was to grow our family through adoption. And at that point, I knew I needed to start a side hustle. And that's when I called my friends from that previous conversation in Uganda, Uh. who had said, we have all of these goods We want to help these artisans. We want to help create a business for them, but we need someone in the U.S. to create a marketplace for them. And I I remember texting them and saying, is that offer still on the table? Real estate really isn't working out for us. And we still, we decided to adopt the paperwork's already in the pipeline for Rwanda. Could I sell those goods? And I thought it was probably going to be a one night thing. And, you know, I just remember the day that that, first, what I didn't know, New Day Collection Trunk Show came. (laughs) Fear was knocking on my door. I was afraid that no one was going to come. So it was that fear of failure. And even more than the fear of failure or fear of rejection really was that I was going to be alone in that rejection, right? That I was going to feel all these terrible feelings of being alone. 
that was one fear. And then another fear was really how I was going to be perceived because we still had a real estate company. It just was failing, you know? And so, well, who invites people over to their home that could be potential clients that shows you, shows them how desperate you are. And I just remember that day thinking, this was the stupidest idea. I need to call this thing off. And of course, I'm so glad I did not call it off. So many women came and, you know, this was women from my neighborhood, neighborhood listserv, all the way from women that I had known from various situations and social groups and about 60 to 60 to 70 women came. We did about $4,500 in sales and people loved the jewelry people is in fact there was this one necklace that sold out and i mean it was like women were like what no i need one can you get more of this and And i began to i can start a multinational direct sales (laughs) like this is my ticket is that did did you realize at that point we, we'd had a real estate business and I, you know, I have an entrepreneurial mindset. I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. I think that night, once everyone left my house, there was something deep in me that did go, huh, I have been invited to a lot of home-based model shows and I've never wanted to go. Hmm. I've been asked to be a salesperson for some of these types of companies and I've never wanted to do it. And yet tonight, so many people came and this got me really excited. Mm. I did realize there's a hole in the market in the direct sales industry of this whole idea of purchasing with purpose. Mm. There's a hole in the market Mm. in this fair trade sector Mm. of fashion forward accessories. So I can't say it came together perfectly like that, but there was a spark there that thought there's a need here. And I immediately texted my friends the next day and I said, gosh, all of all of this stuff sold. In fact, people are wanting more. And they said, well, you know, we wanted you to use that money to seed your adoption. But why don't we connect? Because they were about to leave Uganda. So they these are American friends that were about to move back home. And they said, let us connect you directly with our friends, Jalia and Daniel. These are the, they're so talented. In fact, we think they could be the future leaders of Uganda. They just are extremely poor, you know, 80% unemployment in Uganda. They didn't have a computer. They didn't have a home. They didn't, their kids were not in school. I mean, really they were in abject poverty and yet they had drive, they had potential. And So my friends connected me directly to them for me to place my next order. I went and set up a Western Union account. I knew I needed a proper website, but didn't have money for that. So I dug through and found uh, gold jewelry that, you know, my mom and my grandma had given me for various special occasions throughout middle school and high school. And I went to the post office to weigh the jewelry because I didn't have, I couldn't afford a scale. So I go to the post office to weigh the jewelry and then converted from ounces into grams to figure out how much gold I had. And then I went to about three different Austin pawn shops, landed on the one that I thought was the most promising, pawned off this gold jewelry, had about, I don't know, it was between a thousand fourteen hundred dollars And that was how we built our first website. That's literally how the business started. Wow. Scrappy beginnings, a lot of fear, but going anyway. Huh. 
Let's talk about that for a moment, actually. This is a big theme of the book, courage, kind of not instead of fear, but sort of in the face of fear. And you talk a lot about fear, but you've also, you have like a track record of taking a lot of risk. So, and it's, it starts way before Noonday Collection or way before even this, you know, sort of bootstrapping funding your, your adoption initially. And so I'm, as I read the book and as I think about you from the times that we've been together in person, I'm trying to figure out whether you actually struggle with a lot of fear or whether you actually have an incredibly high tolerance for dealing with fear. (laughs) Am I a hoax, Andy? You want to help me reframe all this and write my next book? You know, it's interesting because I think that you can have two responses to fear. I think it's paralysis of, you know, what the outcome is going to be failure. So I better just not try it all than to try and fail. And that's this perfectionistic mindset, right? But I think that you can still be feel those same feelings of fear. And instead of paralysis, it's like the counter, you know, you counter that fear by just going, you know, I'm afraid of heights. Well, then I'm going to go skydiving. And that is my response to fear. (laughs) Like, I feel like whatever I'm afraid of, the antidote to that is to do the thing. But it was eight months into Noonday where I'm like, okay, this is this is not a fundraiser. This has turned into a business. At that point, I had other women, primarily, it was a lot of women who were in the adoption phase who also needed to fundraise. And they said, can I start a Noonday collection in my town? So we had someone in Seattle start a Noonday collection, someone in Nashville, Houston, Dallas. And at that point, I'm multiplying myself. And Mm. now I'm starting to have to train people on how to sell. And I'm merchandising product. I've now built more artisan partnerships. Jalia and Daniel now have 10 employees. And at that point, I knew I either needed to raise money. I either needed to find an angel investor, which I thought an angel investor was someone who would literally like an angel, just give me a check. (laughs) (laughs) So I have this prayer list from that time of my life. And I still have to this day, it's on my desk and it's like, I need $50,000. I need PayPal and my (laughs) website to learn how to talk to each other. I need more ambassadors. And of course, that's the beautiful thing when you are operating out of such a place of faith. I started reaching out to people, which is what I do. I love connecting with others and I love the wisdom that comes from other people. And one of the people I reached out to was someone who I had met previously in Africa, we would intentionally take trips every year to kind of search out how different organizations were trying to find sustainable solutions to poverty. So it was on one of those trips that I met up with some of my, one of my old high school friends, and she was working for World Relief. And her husband was actually the head of the microfinance loan of World Relief Mm. in Mozambique. So he was one of these guys who I just wanted to meet to kind of think more long-term about Noonday Collection. Mm. So I began meeting with him early mornings before he had to go to his his job and just kind of laid it out there. You know, here's my numbers. And he started asking me just a lot of questions. What's keeping you up at night? What do you feel like you're really good at? You know, do you think this is a nonprofit or a for-profit? Like what's, you know, questions that I had a hair on fire, not really stopped to reflect on very much. And he, after a month, one of our morning coffee says, my wife and I, we've been saving up our whole lives and really to be able to own a business someday, a social business. And he said, would you be interested in being partners, business partners? And we could go in 50-50. I'm ready to go salary free. 
and mm-hmm. live off our savings account. They had three children, one of whom had Down syndrome. So his wife was not working. She was really, you know, pouring into the care mm-hmm. that a child with special needs requires. So that was my, that was fear. Okay. I mean, when, when Travis is like, let's be business partners, what I really heard was, are you going to sacrifice my family for the sake of this vision? And, you know, I imagine them homeless and, (laughs) you know, really like I'm going to lose my best friend, one of my close friends. So I would say that was where I remember very specifically, that was my moment where fear was paralyzing me. Cause I remember sitting on this chair that I sit in when I pray and it was Mm. just being frozen by the potential outcome Mm. of failure. Mm. Because now when you link your prosperity to someone else's, which, you know, in a sense, my prosperity had already been fully linked with Jolia and Daniel, but I had actually not physically met them yet. So I'm thinking, I'm sitting on my prayer chair. I'm thinking, okay, if if this just stops, then, you know, Jolia and Daniel, this was just kind of a one and done thing. And I remember kind of doing one of those, God, you got to speak to me now. I'm going to flip open my Bible and point. And (laughs) it was Ephesians. And it said, you are God's workmanship, which... You are God's poem in the original language. You are God's workmanship created in his image to do good work, do good works, which he has prepared for you in advance. And in that moment, I I did sense the peace of God. And I sense this peace of this is the work that I prepared for you in advance. And then it was that very day that Travis and I were meeting with a business counselor to go over this very intense personality test we had done to see if we were going to end up being, you know, good partners together. And I didn't know this guy's faith background whatsoever, but about halfway through, he tells me, he says, so according to your personality, you'll take risks only if you know 100% there's going to be a successful outcome. <laughs> Which would mean it's I'm, not actually a risk. I'm like, technically. that doesn't really sound like a risk to me, <laughs> but okay. But what he says to me is he says, Jessica, there's the scripture and it uh-huh. says you are God's Oh, Wow. And you are created in his image to do good works, which he's prepared for you in advance. This is the work. Like, I believe this is the work. And that was my push. And so I jumped. And I think for me, going back to this idea of fear, for me, it's like maybe fear hasn't paralyzed me or kept me from doing something, but it has absolutely kept me from walking in the joy. And I could get tender right now because even in launching this book, here we go again. Like I launched this book and instead of like really feeling that partnership with God, that joy of getting to do it with him, I started hustling after that outcome. And for me, the fear is that internal dialogue of, am I going to really receive that I am his poem and that this work has been prepared in advance and I just get to walk in it in partnership with my creator. I get to co-create with him my challenge as an entrepreneur, as a go-getter, as one who doesn't let fear paralyze her, is doing it in joy and doing it in partnership. Hmm. Because you see, you can arrive to the same outcome of success or failure, mm. but how are you going to mm. get there? Are you going to do it in partnership with God or are you going to do it in partnership with fear ultimately? As I was listening, I I wrote down two words that felt like they summarized the way that you respond when there is risk and when you do have that fear and that worst case scenario kind of playing out in your mind. And and one was action. So that sense of like, well, she's just going to go ahead and act rather than being paralyzed and not acting. 
But then the other word I wrote down, which I actually think is by far the deeper thing is connection. And so mm. I think about how you connected with Travis, your co-founder, ultimately, yes. and how you, in that moment of real, realizing, well, that connection actually creates a new kind of fear because now someone else is dependent on me, his family is dependent on this venture succeeding in a new way. What I sense in you is, is there is somehow this sort of deep drive to reconnect, to um, mm. press into connection that allows you to to do that risky thing joyfully and with mm. a kind of assurance, which doesn't necessarily mean an outcome of success. Yes, Andy, this is so <laughs> true. Thank you <laughs> for explaining myself to me. I love this. I think almost by definition, entrepreneurs have that bias to action. I mean, it's one of the things we talk about yes. that we look for and when we're recruiting fellows for our programs and so forth, because that's just the essence of entrepreneurship. And it's actually one of the things I love about working with entrepreneurs is the bias to action. I actually think a lot of times mm. we have a bias to disconnection. And, yes. and all of us are, there's that um, kind of shadow side of our emotions, our imagination that says, oh, it's better not to connect in this situation. Like just with just fake it till you make it, do it by yourself, mm -hmm. uh, do it without real dependence on God, certainly without real dependence on other people. And I'm just thinking maybe that's the deeper thing that we have to cultivate action along with the connection. I love that. Adoption is so much about connection. Yeah. And that's, you know, if I were to look at my parenting pre-adoption, I would say I was outcome oriented in my mindset. I thought, oh. okay, I want perfect kids to come out the other side. And for me, perfect meant like they love Jesus and they're changing the world. You know, <laughs> we like to control outcomes or we like to think that we control outcomes. And when we think we can't control an outcome, then we try to control our behavior in order to create this outcome in our heads. And so I would think wow. about my parenting before was definitely like I'm reading all the books and I'm thinking, okay, how do I create obedience? And, you know, all of these things that we do. And then you decide to grow your family non-traditionally. Mm -hmm. You decide to adopt a child who has come from trauma right. and grief right. and, right. you know, very little about his background. And, you know, that's a whole nother story. But at first we said, we want to adopt a healthy baby one year and under. And then God really changed all of that. And we changed all of our paperwork to kind oh. of say, um, you know, any child. And if there's health issues, then we, we just want to walk into whatever God wants for us. I mean, God created us to do all things in connection with him and with others. We can't trust God and not trust other people because God uh, is in, right? Wow. I think entrepreneurs also have this very typical reputation of like being starters, but not finishers. Mm -hmm. And I definitely struggle with that. I mean, thankfully, my business is so extremely complex and creative that it is still to this day. <laughs> there's always something to start. There's a new line to design. There's new campaigns to begin. There's new people to bring on board. But I would say that if I wasn't connected, if Travis wasn't dependent upon me, if Jolia and Daniel, who now have 100 full-time employees in Uganda, we're not connected and they're not dependent, connected. So it's this interconnectedness, which really is the nature of a B Corp. It's a stakeholder model, not a shareholder model. Oh. We truly are as stakeholders, all completely interconnected. And because of that, there is no leaving. There is no, oh, I'm just going to 
I'm just going to leave this gig and no one's going to be affected. Uh, right. Uh, and uh. in that way, I feel like I've made courage inescapable. I think for me, starting something as a starter, it's actually learning how to sustain something and think about the legacy that we want to leave and the culture that we want to create globally. That's where the rubber's hitting the road for mm. me. Let's talk a little more about that, about the actual structure of the business, I guess in two senses. I mean, one is a more fuzzy thing maybe, and the other is a very concrete thing, which is, you mentioned the B Corp, and I, I wanted to explore why that structure and what that means to you. And maybe it connects with the fuzzier thing, which is, I'm, I'm actually thinking about how the, a very common model, and I don't necessarily think it's an all bad model, let me say, of uh, for-profit entrepreneurship involves you know, like planning for the exit. Uh, and you you build the business, especially if you get venture funding, it's it's all predicated on an eventual exit, either to public markets or to acquisition. And and often that doesn't have to mean the exit of the founder, but in practice it does. And it seems to me you've made a decision, maybe somewhat against your most natural inclination as a starter to be a stayer. <laughs> and that isn't to say you you would never exit in some sense and, and we'll all exit eventually. <laughs> so, but you've chosen like to double down on connection and connection to this business and to your community uh, of people that you work with. And I, I wonder if that in a way is connected to having set it up as a benefit corporation, B Corp, that really ties everyone together interdependently in a different way from the traditional for-profit structure. I have been really thinking about this a lot lately because I am not a stayer. And so the fact that you just kind of proclaim that over me, mm. I am constantly, especially during the first few years, because when I am uncomfortable, which entrepreneurship constantly puts you in, in discomfort, I'm in my mind thinking of those escape routes, right? And I think that way of thinking when you, let's say, are flying, you know, you're building the airplane while it's going up into the air. Well, we've we built the airplane. It's up in the air. Am I going to pilot it or am I going to stand at the door with a parachute on thinking about the exit strategy? And it is so different when you just settle in to pilot the plane into the great horizon, which for us is to build a flourishing world where women are empowered, where children are cherished, where people have jobs, where we are all connected. And I just settling into my place there. Typical direct sales companies, actually, they're some of the few businesses that are able to scale without always taking on outside dollars. And it requires so much discipline, uh, fiscal yeah, discipline, yeah. you know, and, you know, it, we are just so it's kind of like how you raise your children, like, you know, hey, guys, save some you know, don't spend more than you make, you know, and we, that's literally how we do things. We don't spend Radical, more really. than we earn it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But it does require a maybe slightly slower growth, you know, and I love that African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So this whole idea of a stakeholder model of connection, of collaboration, perhaps it does mean that we are growing slower than if we were just fast, 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 get as much money, throw as much money at it as we can. Yeah. There's This connects with something that I thought was really striking toward the end of your book. You talk about the temptation, I guess, to really push your ambassadors, who are your salespeople, who are your you know mm -hmm. channel of your profit engine in a sense. So I just think you're pursuing 
something that is actually much more sustainable and maybe more genuinely beneficial to everyone than if you were just going for the the maximum return right away and the exit. Yeah. I mean, I think that is really, you know, especially with when you're working and partnering with people in poverty, you know, they're so accustomed to the flash in the pan and, you know, they have, you know, Jolly, I quote her in my book, you know, she's like, you, you get, you eat breakfast, but you're quite sure you won't get lunch. You know, you eat lunch, but you doubt you're going to get dinner. And so this idea of long-term sustainability and long-term commitment has really enabled, that's really what's unlocked flourishing in so many ways, because they've been able to plan and planning from everything from raw materials and production needs and planning for how many people they'll need to hire for the upcoming year for, for those orders. And that, you know, when you can both kind of settle in for long term, it really does. It's that connection. It's, it's like, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Hmm. So let's just settle in and change the world together. And that's beautiful and challenging (laughs) if you are not a stayer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. When I spoke with Jessica, she was on a book tour and had just visited Washington, D.C. And one of the things that is almost unknown about D.C., but that it ought to be famous for, is a small group of Christians who have been stayers in that city for several generations now. The people of Church of the Savior, a tiny but incredibly influential Christian community that was planted in 1960 and is still making a difference in that city. And it turns out that their story has made a difference in Jessica's life as well. So I write about the significance of living in Washington, D.C. and the impact that had on my life in my book. When, When I was in the eighth grade, I went to go volunteer in the inner city with a church called Potter's House. Mm. And I remember visiting Samaritan Inns, which was an apartment building for women who had men and women who had come out of residential treatment and had gone through a rehabilitation and had gotten jobs. And now this was their housing and their community. Mm. And I remember being on the seventh floor hearing this woman sing Amazing Grace. And I looked outside the window, and at that time, we had heard that this was the largest open-air drug market in America, and it's only two miles from the White House. And then here's this woman singing Amazing Grace, which, of course, I had sung that song so many times, but I'd never heard it sung by someone who's actually been through toils (laughs) Many dangerous toils and snares, yeah. Many, many. And that was this moment for me of understanding I have been given power, privilege, opportunity, and it is not for me. It is to create flourishing in a sense. And so it was such a profound moment. I always knew I wanted to go back to volunteer for Church of the Savior, this church. And it was started by Gordon Cosby He in 1960. And it was, you know, right during the the civil rights movement. And he really wanted to be a voice of reconciliation. He wanted to really model church in a way that, that had never been modeled 
And I'm quite sure he is the first person to ever introduce the idea that a church could own a coffee shop. But they they started it for it to be a gathering place and then also to employ people. So it was also where I uh, employ people that were coming out of homelessness. So it was also where I was exposed to this idea that work and jobs is actually the way to help people emerge out of poverty. So it was so formative for me. So last week I was in Washington, D.C., and I thought, I, I want to go back to my old stomping grounds. I hadn't been back to Potter's house in about six years. And when I was there six years ago, it was relatively like it, it had hmm. been. But then on one of the walls was the history of the church and, you know, clippings about Gordon Cosby and his wife, Mary, and Church of the Savior and all the different work they had done in the city. So I'm sitting at this table and I'm just really letting the moment soak in. And I'm thinking about this idea of legacy. And Gordon, who passed away a few years ago, were to walk in in that moment. You know, what part of his legacy would he see? And he would definitely see parts of it. It's still owned by, it's called the Eighth Day Church. There was still a communal meeting space. But it also made me think about what are some of the things maybe he wouldn't see that were very much a part of his intention and his founding Mm. spirit Mm. and heart. Like, how do you adapt over time while also staying true to your intention? How do you pass down culture? And, you know, I think that's a big reason I wrote this book, because I think that and why why we write is because it's 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 the words, right? It's words that can translate culture, translate values. It's how we can kind of all be on the same page as we build this global company at Noonday. I was really interested in a section in the book where you talk about realizing you needed to hire a nanny. And and you said oh, yeah. something about that I thought was interesting. You said I had, I, I don't have the page open, but you said essentially I had lived a kind of pre-scripted life that is a pre-scripted life that, you know, had a certain script for what motherhood was, had a certain script, maybe even for what a business founder was. And we talk at Praxis about how important the founder's script is. That is, what story is the founder living by? But, mm. but I'm increasingly think, uh, thinking, as we talk about it, that, that actually the secret, in a way, to being a, a redemptive founder is not living by a single script or not being bound by a script. And that actually what distorts our work so often are the scripts we think we have to live by. And one of the things you've had to live out or really have have had to to some extent break ground in um is the is the question of how do you be a mom wholeheartedly fully and be founder and ceo or yeah you know growing up in the south and growing up with an amazing stay-at-home mom and a pretty traditional dad my personality is like my father. I grew up in San Antonio, 80% Hispanic. So I have a lot, I'm very influenced by the Latin culture. And I think even though I was bent more towards like my dad, kind of this bias towards action, you know, I want to go on adventure, get out of my comfort zone. I think as a little girl, you think, well, I want to, I'm supposed to follow in the footsteps of my mom and my mom went to college, moved back home, actually made her debut, which is a Southern thing that is still very much um, yeah. around and, and where I grew up, met her husband while she was making her debut and then literally got married. So I grew up with this narrative that of, 
a good wife and a good mom takes care of her home and takes care of her children. And if I actually want to like have a shot at like my kids turning out, then I got to follow this script that, you know, is the only thing I had seen. And so here I, you know, now, you know, ironically through motherhood, because of motherhood, I'm starting this business. And so we were officing out of our home for the first, you know, me for the first year. And then when Travis became my partner, he moved in and suddenly I'm parenting three kids under six out of our house. (laughs) So there came this time, thankfully, actually, we, we were able to find this office space that was really near, near my house. And I remember there came this time now where I need to get a nanny. So we find this amazing woman. She ends up nannying with us for five years. She is filled with just joy and service and literally was Jesus with skin on for Mm. our family. But instead of receiving that gift with gratitude, I saw it as this indictment of I can't do both. I, I can't be both a good mom and a good CEO. Obviously, I'm choosing the CEO thing. My kids are going to be screwed up forever. So this is the script. Yeah. And again, I have a bias towards action. So I'm doing the thing yeah. still. But is there any uh, joy when you're living into uh, a narrative of shame uh, around this huge role in your life as a parent? No, not uh, a lot of joy. And I realized it was taking away from my connection with God and my freedom. So... For me, I, I really clearly remember there there was this moment of literally kind of letting God commission me mm. in my role as CEO and oh. mom. You said something that was really interesting to me. You said that God was commissioning you as mm. a CEO. And, and in my mind, I was putting a period there. I was expecting that was what you had felt God commissioning you to that would then make it okay to do this, but you actually, you didn't have a period in mind. That was just in my mind because you said to commission you as a CEO and as a mom. And I think that's really powerful that, yes, that you, you, you are called to both of these things. God is, this is part of the workmanship that you are that Ephesians verse, Mm -hmm. and, and that God wasn't commissioning you to one at the expense of the other, but commissioning you to each in the way that they could be done together that would bring flourishing in both. So I had this moment kind of with God that was just really kind of receiving the narr- his narrative over my life and kind of ripping up that former mm. narrative. But it was my daughter was, I believe she was maybe around six or seven and I was putting her to bed one night and, you know, Jack had been home a couple years at this point And she says to me, mommy, I am so glad that we adopted Jack. Huh. Because if we wouldn't adopted Jack, you wouldn't have started Noonday. And Noonday has helped so many families around the world, like Jolly uh-huh. and Daniel. But mommy, Noonday has really helped our family too. Oh my goodness. And that was it for uh-huh. me. I realized in that moment that Noonday was not at the expense of my family, but for the flourishing. This story of Noonday is both a story of... Um, you know, it starts with international adoption, with your own family's quest for international adoption. And and now it en- encompasses this, you know, worldwide network of artisans, as well as your ambassadors in places like the U.S. You have all these 
people making goods around the world. And it strikes me that both of these things um, have come under some suspicion as people become more aware of the complexity of what happens when uh, people with a lot of wealth and power, which is us, even with very good intentions, go to other parts of the world that that lack those resources. Mm. And, you know, whether that's governments like Rwanda's uh, limiting adoption or also questions, honestly, about interracial adoption, whether that is doing some kind of violation actually to a child who who is from and of a, a particular culture and racial heritage and sort of lifting him out and putting him in another context. Mm -hmm. And then there's the whole question mm -hmm. of, you know, the folks who are making these beautiful things may not be paid wages that we would live at and we have the affluence to purchase mm -hmm. them. So there's all this complexity mm -hmm. in the work you're doing. And I know you have yes. thought about this, <laughs> but I think it would be mm -hmm. very helpful to hear like, how, how have you, how do you conceive of flourishing happening across these chasms of inequality that give us all these options mm -hmm. and do give us the option to get involved, but also sometimes at the cost of potentially exploiting the people we think we're helping. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. how does that work for you? And how do you see that working in Noonday? Yeah. You know, when I woke up in the eighth grade, I continued to pursue justice and I got so much wrong. I remember going to Africa and coming back to home and raising money for a little girl to go to school, convinced that I was going to be in touch with her forever. And this was the way was education. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing homeless ministry and, you know, passing out meals without any thought around where are they going to sleep that night and what, you know, what kind of, how could I help be with them in the long term? So I think in this pursuit of justice, when we wake up and realize we have privilege, you know, we go through a time of, of getting it wrong. And I think I did have a very much a material mindset towards poverty, that it was a resource mm. issue. I've been able to reconcile my privilege, my whiteness, my power with this idea of we are all created in God's image. And when I would go when I went and worked in Guatemala and in Bolivia, I think that's where I saw how development could really get it wrong because there mm -hmm. were latrines in Bolivia that were filled with rocks. And, oh. you know, obviously a development organization come in and assessed like this is what this community needs. And that's really where I discovered entrepreneurship is I just got to know people that I would the community I was living with, it was the person who was making their clothes, but then also making additional clothes to sell at the market. The person who was growing corn, but also had a silo to store corn for the rainy season to be able to sell to people. It was that spirit of entrepreneurship, that image bearing uh, spirit that uh, I saw where people were able to really rise out uh, of poverty. And so I think for me, I've been able to see, I think when we look at poverty or privilege just purely through the lens of material needs or skin color. Um, I think it is easy to, to kind of create this power dynamic. But when we really go to God's story, that each of us, it's the image bearing story that we're all created in the image of God. And each person is created to use their power to create more power for other people. And that can be done anywhere. Mm. So this paradigm can be applied to every human being around mm. the world. And I think that is what ultimately 
frees uh, me when I see it's not just it's not just for this American privilege context, uh, but it's this image bearing narrative. And if the underlying story is of image bearing and the multiplication of power, um, it it changes it changes what you do, how you do it, how long you do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It does. Yeah. You're right. It changes. It changes yeah. everything. Jessica Honiger of Noonday Collection. Her 2018 book is really worthwhile. It's called Imperfect Courage, Live a Life of Purpose by Leaving Comfort and Going Scared. I actually think that subtitle sums up a crucial part of what it means for people of privilege to be part of restoring that narrative of image bearing for everyone. Because when we leave our comfort and when we go scared, we join the world of our neighbors who often are not comfortable and often are scared. And somehow in that shared humanity, when the bondage of both comfort and fear is broken by love, we find connection and courage. That's pretty close to the heart of redemptive entrepreneurship. Noonday Collection's website is noondaycollection, all one word, .com. If you want to know more about Praxis and what we do, visit us at praxislabs.org, praxislabs, all one word, .org. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate us and review us on iTunes. That's by far the best way to help other people find the show. And we'd love to address your questions. Uh, we're preparing a bonus episode based totally on questions you have. So just leave them right in the review, or you can give us comments and questions on our website at podcast.praxislabs.org where you can also get show notes and transcripts. The Redemptive Edge is produced by the effervescent Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, with executive production from the sagacious Scott Kaufman, our partner for content. We're incredibly grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. <laughs>